Let us pray. Father God, we come before this text for a fifth time. And what might be the last time we consider it in this series through Exodus and through this segment of preaching, and yet give us new ears to hear what this word has for us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the evening of November 10th, in 1619, a 24-year-old Frenchman, a Roman Catholic military officer in a mercenary army stationed in the city of Prague, his watch was over. He had been battling cold, and his watch was over. And how he had actually come to even be in a mercenary in this army is that three years earlier, he had withdrawn from the University of Paris, and he, much to the chagrin of his father, who desired for him to be a lawyer, and he decided to study the world, to learn not from books, but to learn from the world the greatest of all books, he said. Actually, to read his words of how this Frenchman would eventually describe this season of his life, he said, I entirely abandoned the study of letters, resolving to seek no knowledge other than that of which could be found in myself or else in the great book of the world. I spent the rest of my youth traveling, visiting courts and armies, mixing with people of diverse temperaments and ranks, gathering various experiences, testing myself in situations which fortune offered me, and at all times reflecting upon whatever came my way to derive some profit from it. He let the world teach him what to believe. And on that evening of November 12, 1619, as his watch ended, he was cold. He was bitterly cold. And he took this little kind of portable heater and he went to his bed trying to keep warm, shivering through the night. And he reported having three dreams. And he actually... In his own accounting of it, he actually believed a divine spirit. A divine spirit came to him and revealed these dreams to him. Being woefully ignorant of the fact that, for instance, in, I believe, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, that just because you believe a divine spirit comes to you, if it's a divine spirit that would lead you astray from Christ, you would not receive it. But nonetheless, he doesn't care. We've already heard he's a student of the world and the world's philosophy. And in this, he had three visions in the night's dream that he believed was brought to him by this spirit. And what this spirit revealed to him is that he couldn't be certain of anything. He couldn't be certain that 
He was a soldier. He couldn't be certain that he was actually freezing in the city of Prague. He couldn't be certain that he was a young man who disappointed his father by not finishing his academic life. If he had lived to see the modernity of our day, he would have been most certain in saying, I can't even be certain that I'm a man. I'm, maybe I'm just a woman trapped in a man's body. But this divine spirit, It did reveal one truth that he could fall back on. One truth he could rely on. One truth that he could hold on to in the cold of Prague amongst all others. I think, therefore, I am. I'm speaking, of course, of Rene Descartes, who 400 years ago ushered in a new branch of Humanism and man-made philosophy that is the most popular religion of our day. Think about that statement in light of the passage that we are in. Where here is Moses encountering, I am. And here is Rene Descartes, who has, in one sense, symbolized the world that followed him, but also it's a world that long ago existed. I think, therefore, I am. The battle between those two realities is an epic battle that, we, that the Scriptures reveal themselves. The only assurance he had that this divine Spirit gave him By the way, just think of that. Divine Spirit, he's already believing in the supernatural. By the way, this is an aside, not in the sermon, but people want us to believe in the natural science world, in the supernatural. If you don't think Rachel Levine wants you to believe in the supernatural, if you don't think that Bruce Jenner wants you to believe in the supernatural. I don't know what to say to you. But the supernatural creed that they want you to believe is, I think, therefore, I am. I am. And so do you see the conflict of this Frenchman's ideas and the God who came to Moses? We live in a culture that its creed is, I think, therefore, I am. And so everything is malleable. Everything is on the table. Everything can be open to scrutiny. In the days of my youth, I was product of the waning years of the Cold War. The land of Reagan is the first world that I knew of as a youth. The ultimate symbol of freedom was the American flag. We even our church have, I'm not a part of this battle, but the battle of the American flag and where it should be in the sanctuary. Because it was a symbol of freedom. It is still, hopefully, a symbol of freedom. I think it's very good when we walk into church to be able to see the American flag and thank you to God to placing us in a land that still has a degree of freedom of religion. How soon will we look like Canada? I don't know. 
You know what the symbol is for freedom is today? It's the internet. It's the internet really probably ac accessed by an iPhone with unfettered access, you know, the kind with no restrictions. Where whatever you think, you can find a community for yourself. You can find a community that will give you an identity. It will have its forms of evangelists. I had to laugh this week because, you know, as I'm from the other coast, once the land of Reagan, now land of fruits and nuts, and I'm from the other coast. And so everybody on my Facebook feed from that side of the country is talking about the reality of the winter being so cold. And then every, but like a lot of people on this side of the country are talking about how there's no winter. So I have these like epic photos of winter on the west and every, and everybody's sort of, you know, there's a community that springs up that the east coasters are talking about how this is all global warming. And then the west coasters are all talking about how this is global cooling. And I'm just busy saying, you know, these just weather patterns. Isn't weather kind of uncontrollable in certain things, but I'm a loon to some people. Immediately, I've offended certain communities. But maybe I don't like that community. Maybe I want to be the community that identifies by my ethnic reality. By the way, the Bible knows nothing of the word race. It knows ethnic realities. But maybe I want to be in one of those communities. Maybe I want to be in a community that identifies by sexuality. I don't know. I think. Therefore, I can be in all kinds of communities. You know what? Maybe I want to be in a community that just identifies by political party or by political figures. Whether that's AOC or whether that's Donald Trump. Let me find my identity in them. I think I, I want to be a part of that identity. And we end up on our own little freewheeling Rene Descartes kind of death march of our soul because we don't apprehend the identity that God has already given us in Him. And we'll never be settled, we'll never be content until we realize this, that the one in whose image we were created in is the identity in whom we need to find our identity and whose truth we need to find the truth. Not a truth, the truth. And we'd rather say, and we'd rather live out, I think, I think this, God. I think not that, God. I think this, not that. Or I can't understand these things. They're too beyond me. You can't understand the one you're created in the image of, so you just kind of, you don't bother studying that stuff. And you surrender the I am. And you do that. And when I do that. Let me give an example of this. Let me give an example of how much this tension of I think, therefore I am, is already inculcated in your thinking. Let me read for a moment. Verse 8. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, Beresite, the Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The least favorite reading, part of the reading for all, 
five weeks, I'm sure, of the readers. And what does it mean, after all? People from the region of, people from the city of. Have you been offended when you've heard Canaanite every week? Why not? You really haven't. As you've heard Ace verse 8, you haven't been offended. You haven't been offended because even though the Canaanites were demonically charged people who had temple prostitution and sacrificed their kids unto death in worship of their God, duh, plural, it hasn't risen to the level of offense. Now, what if I say a word that Jesus said in the Gospels, for instance, in Matthew 10, 15? Sodomite. Sodomite. What do you think of that word? Ooh, that's not an okay word. I don't think you can say that, Pastor. You know why we have that tension? I can even feel that tension saying that in the pulpit. Sodomite. Because I think, therefore, I am. It's not that God has outlawed that word. Actually, it's a very helpful word. It's a very helpful word because what happened in Sodom? There was unnatural relations. Male angelic beings came to Sodom. And the men of Sodom sought to rape them. And so it's been a word to define that the church is used. The church translates it's in Scripture. To help just say it's a struggle of sexual, unnatural sexual relations. But why have we decided that's not a safe word? Well, I think. I think it's not because of how it's, you know, how people are interpreting it, how people are judging it, how people will receive it. Well, who's jot? Who's judged then? Who was Rene's Descartes' judge of the universe when he believes that the essential creed of his life is, I think, therefore I am? Who is the judge of the universe? Is it God? No, it's Rene Descartes. I'll give another example. An easier one, maybe, to hear in a Reformed group. But for some of you, it will still be hard. I've had, in the last couple of weeks, both by phone and in personal meeting. And neither, neither individual is a member of this congregation. Somebody wanted to bait predestination with me. You know, I'm a Reformed pastor, and that means I believe, just as this word can reveal, that God knows the beginning from the end. God is the God of both past, present, and future. He is an unbroken chain link of reality to him of time time is his creation he is it is he is the master of it and he knows the entire story even in this passage he's telling moses part of what will be a confirming sign for you is when later on you bring the people of god here to worship me he's predicting the future but i have had people in the last couple of weeks want to just take up the debate of predestination with me and it's interesting, even, especially the phone call person. Because you think they came with Bible verses? Yeah, locked and loaded? Well, honestly, let's get a poll here. 
Do you think they came with Bible verses, lock and loaded? What did they say? I think. I don't like. I don't like that idea. And so they fell into the trap of, I think, therefore I am. And they missed the God that encounters Moses here. We are more inculcated with this kind of thinking than we dare believe. And we need to be mindful of it. We want a God who will not speak for himself. And so we ignore this. We want a God that has all the sensibilities, all the thoughts, all the feelings that we want to imagine upon him. And I'm and when I, it's come to the point where when I read the gospels, places like John chapter six, I realize that in Jesus' ministry, we already see this kind of trend, and it, the trend is this. When Jesus said the hard things, when Jesus said the things that people didn't like to hear, what happened to the crowd? They dispersed. They dispersed. The most dramatic of which being John chapter 6, where even, it seems like even some of the disciples for a moment thought, this guy's words are too hard. <laughs> And I think it's Peter who speaks up and says, where else would we go, though? You alone have the words of life. I think a lot of people excuse themselves to biblical ignorance of what God says and biblically misrepresenting what God says and don't commit themselves to a more firm footing upon the word of God because they realize that if they were to walk that far, they might no longer like the God that they believe they're walking with. And actually, this passage gives you an encouraging word if that's you today. Because Moses, as we've pointed out many times, is 80 years old. He tried being a Hebrew really for two days thus far in his 80-year-long life. Two days. You know, I, my two eldest children stayed with their grandparents for two days this week. It's not a long time. Two days he tried being a Hebrew up until this point. I could go around the sanctuary. I could hand out pieces of paper to all of you and say, write down everything you know about God to be true. And everybody who could write could write more than Moses could at 80 at this moment. And yet God, because Moses will humble himself, he'll give up that pride of life. And more on that in weeks to come, those objections to following God more faithfully? Moses will come to know. Moses will come to have a relationship. Moses will come to have an intimacy with God that up until that point in humanity, nobody outside of Adam and Eve had ever had for a period of time an intimacy like that. And so if that's been you, if you realize your Christian walk has been full of, I think... Therefore, I am. 
There is an encouraging word in this passage to the individual, as Rob was saying, even in Sunday school, who will give up the pride of life and humble themselves before the word of God. An encouraging word. But you've got to give up. I think, therefore, I am. You've got to give up the 24-year-old Frenchman shivering in Prague inside all of us. And Moses takes that humility. We saw that last week when we considered Moses saying, who am I? And the reality was, he's a nobody. He's nothing before God. And yet here is Moses when confronted with true light of true light that calls out, I am. Moses understands he has no right to be an authority anymore. Just look at verse 13. He doesn't even know God's name. And yet in this name that's revealed to him is so much to give us comfort. You know, how this is basically written, the I am who I am, in the Hebrew, you could translate this 27 different legitimate ways. And I'm going to actually read them just to show, because we, because the reality of God is overwhelming. I hope that this shows that. You could say, and I believe the ESV puts it this way, I am who I am. But here are 26 more ways to translate it. I am who I was. I am who I shall be. I was who I am. I was who I was. I was who I shall be. I shall be who I am. I shall be who I was. I shall be who I shall be. I am that I am. I am that I was. I am that I shall be. I was that I am. I was that I was. I was that I shall be. I shall be that who I am. I shall be that who I was. I shall be that who I shall be. I am what I am. I am what I was. I am what I shall be. I shall be what I am. I shall be what I was. I shall be what I shall be. And what are you to take from that? First thing you're supposed to take from that is your thoughts are pitiable philosophical and theological musings about what is right and what is wrong, what is true, what is false, if it does not first come in contact with the revealed God of truth, that you're going to quickly get off track. That if you live a life motto of Rene Descartes, I think, therefore, I am. You're going to quickly get off track, Christian. God, I have no doubt that when Moses wrote this down, he wrote it in this way that is overwhelming in the Hebrew. Utterly overwhelming. So that we would know that 
the reality and fullness of God cannot be summed up in some pitiable, measly idea. And some standard of truth can't be held in some human's hands as he shivers the cold night in Prague. We worship the true God whose mind is so all-encompassing, who is so complex, he names himself in a way that is so fully orbed that the depths of his name can never be fully ascertained. And God is telling Moses here clearly, I am the authority. I am the God who knows past, present, and future. I am the God who knows when my people are suffering. I am the God who intimately knows each and every one of them. And I even know my people will eventually come to worship me here at this very mountain. That you see, Moses, remember that someday I'm going to draw you to this mountain and you are going to worship in my grandeur, and you're going to go worship in my glory with all the people that are brought to me. And I am. And I am here with you. And because the great I am spoke, Moses began to come to be a radically new man. The old is beginning to fade away right before our eyes of this 80-year-old man. Moses clearly does not feel ready for what God is about to call him to. And you know what? He is right to not feel ready. Because none of us are. But so long as Moses remembers God's with him, God knows him, those become the very best moments of Moses' ministry. So long as those moments where he lets God's plan lead him, God's plans guide him, such moments are the best of his story. But when he falls away, when he succumbs yet again to that, I think, I think, therefore I am, in those moments there's a different story. So I ask you, I ask you all, and it's so unfortunate, because every week I can give a variety of answers to this question in my own life. Are there destructive patterns of thought and thinking in your own life that you need to give, o- give up and give in? Give them to God? Give them to the great I Am? Facets of truth that you won't embrace because it's, it just would be too inconvenient. Or sins that in the past you can't forgive yourself of, or even sins that you do not desire to resist, even calls that the Lord is placing upon your life. That's an epic battle. Those battles of thought patterns that do not want to submit to the God who comes for us. And we need to be mindful that when we look out, either at society and the great conflicts of the world. It's really a conflict often that is, I think, therefore I am. But also when we look into the human heart, especially our own, we can see so much of that which leaves us conflicted is us saying, I think, therefore I am. 
You're not going to be wiser than God. You're not going to be nicer than Him. You're not going to be kinder than Him. You're not going to be smarter than Him. You're not going to be holier than Him. You're not going to be better than Him. You're not going to be more glorious than Him. You're not going to be more tolerant than Him. I could go on. We need to give up that kind of thinking. Do you want an example of somebody who could not give up the thoughts of being right in their own eyes? You find it in Luke chapter 16. It's the rich man. The rich man and Lazarus. And it's interesting because in this story, there's a way that people will tell this story. Because the rich man is in Hades. Abraham is in Hades. But the rich man is in the place of torment. And Abraham is in the place of paradise. And there's a great chasm between the two of which neither can pass. And a lot of like social justice warriors will make this a rich versus poor thing. And they fail to appreciate that Abraham was probably like the richest man of his lifetime. And that's who's a part of the dialogue. It's nothing to do about wealth that this story's about. That's not the main point. Main point is this. The rich man sees Abraham standing with Lazarus, who was the poor man who was outside his house. And he goes, hey, can Lazarus come to me? Can he come to me and bring me some comfort? And Abraham says, no, he can't. can't. There's a great chasm here. He, He can't come to you. And... Then the rich man's thinking again. He goes, well, then can Lazarus go to my five brothers? I don't want my five brothers to go to this place of torment, this place of judgment. Can he at least go to them? Because if they see him, if they see that he's still alive, then they will believe, they will repent of their human thinking, of their human understanding, of their human wisdom. And Abraham says, no, they won't. No, they won't. They have Moses and the prophets. Other words, they have the word of God. And if they won't believe the word in God, if they won't put their trust in the word of God, it's not going to matter if they even see a dead man Come back to life. By the way, when Jesus mentions the Sodomites in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, his point is actually that, you know, in his own day, culturally wanted to pick on, they wanted to culturally pick on that group as well. He said, you know what? You know the worst group? The worst group is to see those who have a taste of the miraculous reality of my coming and who still don't change. They're worse than the sodomites. I think, therefore, I am. We have a name for that pathway. It was given to us by Christ. That path is called wide and broad, and it leads to destruction. But narrow is the path That leads to eternal life. And so for the rest of your days, if you're on things like the internet, if you're on, if you're, you know, 
in public society. They're going to try to recruit you. People will try to recruit you with their thinking, their thoughts, their patterns of understanding. And so, how do we battle against such things? We need to remember the God who came for us. The God who came for us on the mountaintop. And the mountain I talk about isn't just Mount Sinai, though he went to Mount Sinai, it's Calvary. And that mountain is a mountain in which he announces our freedom from sin. He gives us freedom from having to still trying to pretend to be our own God. A stat that just scared me. I know I've gone long, but a stat that just scared me as I was studying for the All That Remains is that for every 120 Americans, if you've got a sample size of 121 Americans, 120 of them believe they're going to heaven. Only one of them believes they're going to hell. And actually, I think of the one that believes they're going to hell, they're probably like the publican. They probably are going to be in heaven. How can 400 and, I think it was when I looked it up, like 84 Americans will die during this service? 480 of them will think they're on their way to heaven. How does that happen? That happens because I think Therefore, I am. I'm okay. My thoughts are okay. My thoughts are morally neutral. My thoughts are right. My wisdom is true. And the Christian's call is, I've had an encounter with the living God who reveals what is true, who tells me what is true, and calls me to follow him in faithfulness. To remember that at the final reality of it all, that is our identity. As Augustine put it, I believe in God so that I might understand all things. You start with your belief in God. You start with what you know is to be true. And then the pitfalls of this world that want to get us sidetracked are no longer pitfalls, but you see the folly of the wisdom of it all. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, our thoughts are often desperately wicked. And yet you continue to come for us in your word. You continue to come for us in the love of others. You continue to come for us faithfully with grace and mercy that abound, but also with a word of truth. Help us not to surrender ourselves to the freedoms that the world upholds as good. For in them are the snares. For the, in them is gross wickedness. Let us rather come to the unmuddied waters. The pure and life-giving word that we hear when we sit and we look to you. Yes, this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess our sins before the Lord.